It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. For those that are getting this via podcast uh, and have not been able to be live uh, in the room here at Ellerslie in the chapel, you're missing something because we have uh, a team of guys that sets up chairs every day and uh, we've had some bizarre setups, but they set it up sort of geographically. That's been one of the things. We did have like a creation setup where there was chaos uh, in the room and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We had that set up. Uh, today we have Germany, so the chairs are structured as Germany, and then we have a little of Austria, Hungary, and Russia. Uh, and so it's, it's just, it, I have to admit, it's been a delight coming in every day, even though there's some people that are actually sort of angled funny uh, in the room today and have to crane their neck a little. But that's part of the humor, I think, of being a part of this semester, but really fun. Now, who knows? Maybe this will be a trend that is picked up by upcoming semesters. It takes certain minds to actually uh, do this. There has to be a smirk in the soul uh, to come in every morning, to have the time to do this, right? But it's been fun. All right, guys, we're diving into uh, episode 14 uh, in our series uh, called Spiritual Lessons from World War I. I highly encourage those of you that have missed the first 13. It's not that I'm going to twist your arm for any reason to say you have to go back and listen to them. However, there is a story that's developing. Even though individual episodes could probably stand alone because they're an individual truth, the overall whole is going to be knitting together something. It's, it's creating a picture. And so just as much as, as, a, as an author, I, I wouldn't want someone just opening up my book halfway in the middle and just sort of saying, hey, I, uh, you know, this is an interesting chapter. You always want people to start in the beginning and read to the end. That's just an author's dream, right? The people, there's, there's these readers out there, and I don't know if you're one of them, that actually open the end of the book first and cheat, okay? And I know you're out there, you know, because some of you admit it, you know, to me, you know, in your, in your moment of confession. Uh, and that's a certain quality where I don't know what it is. It's a personality style. Like, I like surprise, and I like to not know, and I don't like spoilers. Some of you do not like that you like the spoiler. Give me the spoiler, please. I have not given spoilers on World War I as we've been going through. At least I've been trying not to. There's been a few things that have slipped out if you're like cunning and you could have picked up on them. Uh, and yet, ironically, it's not that hard to figure out what happened in World War I. <laughs> you could figure it out without going through this series. But it is sort of fun seeing that compounding uh, story, the different nations and how they're interlocked and how these things are impacting not just these individual people in a nation, but the entire world in the next hundred years. It's really intriguing. And yet, if it doesn't have personal benefit to us in this room or anyone listening via podcast or seeing this via video, then it's useless to us. History has value in the fact that it builds us, strengthens us, steers us, trains us, teaches us. If it's just information, it could be intriguing or entertaining, but it doesn't necessarily do the work that I think God intended it to do. It's a teacher, it's an instructor, and it's a really fun one, I have to admit. I, I, I love history, and hopefully those of you that were a little bland on history, hopefully you're starting to catch the vision of how powerful history can be. This one, I, I, I've gone back and forth. The title has changed many times. And I ended up, even right before I sent it over, uh, I, I was about to change it to the Russian swizzle. And I was like, because ah, I, I, you've noticed that in a lot of my titles, I put a name or a character in there. The reason I chose to call this the Nicholas swizzle instead of the Russian swizzle, which was sort of my, my final decision, 
is because I want it to have more of a personal nature to it. Because I think when we learn about William instead of just learning about Germany, it helps us. It helps us identify. It's like the, the woman that watches football. You know, if it's just a whole bunch of guys crashing helmets, it's not as interesting. But if she learns about the people and then their wives, and they, oh, this guy has a kid, suddenly they're interested. <laughs> The same thing is true about something like this in World War I. It's like to know the individuals and to have a little insight into their lives makes it feel more tangible to us. And Nicholas II is one of those guys, it's hard to describe, but it is a, it's a tragedy. It's, a, it's like if I could describe the whole story, it's a tragedy. I like the guy. And, you know, when, I, when you talk about William, William... I feel bad for him, right? He irritates me, but to say that I like him is sort of a hard, it's somewhat of a stretch. I like him, like as a Christian, I love him, right? But as a, as a person and a person in history, he's very irritating, okay? And I'm, he's going to create all sorts of crisis and problems. It's hard to say that I like him, right? Nicholas, I like him. I do. I, I, I'm, I'm attracted to him as a person, and I feel his weakness. And in a strange sense, I, there's an identification that comes. Just like when I see William, I see a little William in me. Uh, when I see Nicholas, I see a little Nicholas in me. Of course, when I see Winston Churchill, I want to see a little Winston Churchill in me. You know, there's, there's different, the way you, that we read books, for instance, is the protagonist, we have a tendency to want to elevate our lives to identify with it. And so I've oftentimes said that in, in certain books, except for, you know, the, the typical book, you can usually identify with the protagonist. That's at least one of the goals of the author. And however, when the book, The Scottish Chiefs, which is about William Wallace, which the third chapter is called Ellerslie, just to give you an idea, it had a big impact on the environment you're in right here. But William Wallace is perfect in that book. He's like a Christ figure. And he has blonde, long, flowing locks of hair, and the women faint when they see it. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous, right? It's the Romantic era, where evil is really evil and good is really good, which creates a problem for us as the reader to identify with either extreme. It's like you're dealing with Hitler and you're dealing with Jesus in the, in the, in the storyline. You're like, I don't know if I can fully relate to either of these. It's very impressive, though, to watch William Wallace in that storyline. Even though, yes, he's better than good. In other words, he's just so virtuous. In every trial, he, he handles it perfectly. But then there's another character called Edwin. And Edwin is the right hand of Wallace. And it's like, it's weird because I find myself identifying with him because it's more my level. And so all of us, as we go through history and we learn about these characters, we're looking for those that we can relate to. And even in their foibles and their fumbles, it's interesting how that can teach us. World War I has far more foibles and fumbles than it has uh, touchdowns and spikes in the end zone. In other words, we have a lot of weakness on display. This time in history, one of the reasons we're going to have a world war is because we have no great leadership. Great leadership has evaporated in the world, and right at this time, you have very unhealthy leaders, very insecure men that are at the helm, and that's going to lead to the breakdown. Nicholas is one of them. So here's our guy. His name is uh, Nicholas, but he's a czar, which is the same word as Caesar, which is the concept of an emperor or a king. And so we have Kaiser Wilhelm II, which is the same word. It's Kaiser instead of Tsar, even though the two don't sound very similar. They are the same. And so he is what I'm calling the king of Russia. 
And even that picture is very telling of his life. It's sort of sad. He has so much weight upon his shoulders and he has no idea how to carry it. He is in control of the greatest territory on earth with the most, the highest levels of population and therefore the highest level of responsibility. He is going to call for a, a peace conference in late 1800s, I want to say 1899, to bring all the leaders of the world. He feels responsible to take the lead because he sees the fracturing. And he's, he's going to make a pitch to say no more advancement in technology. Where we're at, we just want to stall. And can we all make an agreement to that? Very interesting. I mean, as far as a thought process, but he was intimidated by the fact that, first of all, he's not a very highly intellectual guy. He's not a great leader. He's just inherited the monarchy, but it wasn't based on his capacity. It wasn't based on his educational ability, his IQ. It wasn't based on his leadership moxie. He's just the son of Alexander III, and he's the firstborn, so he's in line to inherit this position. Get this, he doesn't want the position. So could you imagine what this must be like? He doesn't even want to be the czar. And most of us are like, you don't want to be the czar? You have the opportunity to shape the direction of the world and you don't want it? He doesn't want it. And it's going to show in his leadership too. He's insecure and he's vulnerable. So there's our map. And I, I originally intended, I had a whole bunch of maps that I was going to rotate through. But you know, I actually think it's sort of helpful to have one map that we keep going to. And, you know, in the middle, we have the central powers, which we've become familiar with. And those are the, uh, you know, Germany's on top. It's sort of the, the shape of the horse's head. And uh, Austria-Hungary and then Italy. Italy is one of the central powers. They're in league with Austria-Hungary and Germany going into this time period. However, their agreement is to defend Germany and Austria-Hungary in a defensive situation. If they are attacked, Italy will come to their defense. So Italy, in a loophole, is going to back out of this because they're going to say, no, you guys are the aggressor, which I'm not going to argue. They were. And then you're going to see the blue countries, which are going to be known as the Triple Entente, or eventually the Allies. And that's Russia, France, and the United Kingdom. So I'm going to put a star up right near the top of the screen. It's sort of hard to see up there, but it's a red star. And that's St. Petersburg, uh, Russia, and which is going to, in World War I, be changes, the name changes of this city a lot, uh, to Leningrad, because St. Petersburg sounded too German. And so they're going to literally change the name of this city to, uh, to Leningrad. Uh, I'm sorry, did I say Leningrad? Petrograd, sorry. It will become Leningrad, but that's, boy, that's talk about spoiler alert. Uh, sorry about that, guys. And uh, so that's where our guy is going to be hanging out. This is sort of his location. And so you can see it's just interesting to just see how sprawling the world is. When you start looking at something like this, it's like, that is like so far away from Mexico, where we just were talking in our last episode. We're so far away. So I'm going to introduce you to a few other characters. So I introduced you to Nicholas II, but this is his wife, and so she's known as the Tsarina. So isn't that interesting? The Tsar and the Tsarina. And it's like the king and the king Rina. You know, it's like an odd phrase for us. But her name is Alexandra. He would refer to her as Alex. She is the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. And so these two are actually related pretty far down the line. They're not you know, closely related, but they're related because 
Nicholas is indirectly related to uh, the royal line in Great Britain too. Uh, William is a grandson of Victoria as well. All the, I mean, everyone seems to be interrelated. And she's going to become a very, very important player in this story. And she's also a rather sad tale. And so even the way that they are in these pictures is interesting to me. Because, you know, if we were in a picture, we'd be smiling. Instead, there's a somberness in all of their pictures, and part of that is the time period in which it was happening. It took a long time to get a picture. You know, it's like, stand there for 10 minutes. You know, it's just like, maybe it's easier to be like this than to have a big smile on your face. However, that's very, uh, it's like an intimate look into a lot of the, mo the emotion that surrounds her life. This character, his name is Alexi. Uh, and I don't know if I could say his last name or this other part of his name uh, right, Nikol Nikolaevich, uh, but he is called the Tsarevich of Russia, which you have the Tsar, and then you have the Tsarina, and the one that is in line, the heir apparent to the throne is the Tsarevich. This little boy has a lot resting on him. He is the only son, and that son in the Romanov dynasty, which is hundreds of years old, is critical to the Russians. And so when Nicholas and Alex marry, which is at a time of crisis in their country, because Alexander III is going to die, and they're not yet married. And so the, the stability of the nation sort of hinges on Nicholas sort of getting his act together. So the pressures upon these two from the very beginning are off the charts. And she is going to step into a situation with so, such massive pressures upon her, but what is the pressure? She needs to have a son. Uh, excuse me, but it's time you have a son. See, her only value to the Russian people, for most of them, truly, if they were going to be honest, is that she can help Nicholas have a son, which will then keep the empire, which will keep the Romanov dynasty together. So here's a picture. Uh, I wish I could zoom in. You guys could see it a little bit better. It is a very, very detailed and sharp photo uh, where you can see uh, very defined uh, attributes to it. It's really neat. Uh, but this is the Romanov dynasty. So that's, that's the name of their house is the Romanovs. And so, of course, you see uh, Nicholas in the chair and his wife uh, behind his left shoulder. And then I'm going to circle Alexei right there because this is all going to center really around him. And part of what is going to take place in this country, which is very, very significant in the history of the world over the last 100 years, is going to center right here. Now, here's another character that doesn't seem to fit into the storyline, and I wouldn't blame you for thinking that picture's a little disturbing. Uh, his name is Grigory Rasputin. Now, for those of you that know the story, you're expecting this guy's face to pop up on the screen. However, for those of you that don't know the story, it just seems rather jarring. It's like everything was so refined, royal, and regal, and noble, and pleasant, and then this guy pops onto the screen. And I, even his eyes, I don't, I don't know if you guys deal with the same thing, but that is a sort of a freaky picture. And yet it's hard to find a picture of this guy that isn't. He is going to become a famous character in Russia at this time, and he's going to be, I mean, most of you maybe have even heard at least the word Rasputin or the name Rasputin since. But he's called the Mad Monk. There's other <clears throat> worse terms for him as well. Uh, I'll just say it that way. So a swizzle. Now, 
a swizzle is, I'm using it in sort of British slang, uh, you know, because if you look it up, it's sort of one of those cocktails, like a rum swizzle. And it's also, we have something called a swizzle stick, which like stirs drinks. So it's more one of those things that probably in a bar you would be familiar with. It's not the type of thing I typically am going to know about or use, right? A swizzle stick. Maybe I have. Maybe those little things you get at Starbucks are swizzle sticks. I, I don't know. I've never asked. Uh, however, I'm going to use it in, the, in a slang way because I like the word. And it, I, think, I thought it went well in my title, right? And that is a con or swindle, a fraudulent deception. There is going to be a swizzle brought about on, on Russia, and it's going to play upon the weakness of the Russian emperor, or the Russian king, uh, Nicholas II. In other words, he is vulnerable. And because of his vulnerability, this is going to work. So I'm going to call Nicholas II the uncertain dictator. So let's go a little into that. Listen to this quote. This is spoken in confidence to one of his advisors in 1894 when he was 26 years old. He is going to say this, what is going to happen to me, to all Russia? He has just inherited this incredible position. I am not prepared to be czar. I never even wanted to become one. Now, I don't know if you can almost feel the trajectory of the nation right even in that quote. You're dealing with, there's so many political uh, powers at B, and this is right at the rise of what we could call Bolshevism. And so it's the working class gaining a voice instead of sort of this upper crust sort of putting them under their thumb. But ever since the French Revolution, you're going to see sort of this uprising. It's like, hey, you need to recognize this. Enough of this, you know, royal class. And this is all going to be stirring. And so what Nicholas II is inheriting is a very unsteady and unstable nation. And it's not a job that most people would want anyways, let alone someone who doesn't want it in the first place. I mean, imagine how undesirable it would be. Following in the footsteps of competence. There's nothing quite like the person that went before you being really good at what he does. And then you inherit the job and everyone's measuring you against it. Like when John Elway uh, retired, uh, he's the quarterback for the Denver Broncos. I remember feeling so bad for, I think it was Brian Greasy, the guy that stepped into his job, because he couldn't do anything right. I mean, when you're used to having what we as Denver Broncos fans consider the greatest quarterback of all time. See, for those of you that want to argue that, you're not the one with the microphone. Uh, <laughs> and yet when anyone steps into that job description, they're a failure. It's a very unfortunate type of setup. And that's exactly what Nicholas has. He has a very unfortunate setup where his dad enjoyed the job. His dad just sort of fit the bill. Now, his dad wasn't a very nice guy. However, what Russia needed was not a nice guy. What Russia needed was a tough guy. And that's what Alexander III is. So the problem is Nicholas is not a tough guy. Nicholas is a nice guy. And, but Russia needs a tough guy. You can just imagine what that feels like when you're a nice guy and you're supposed to be a tough guy. It's hard when you're the nice guy and you're supposed to be tough. And that's exactly what Nicholas is going to run into. So Alexander III, now I've introduced him very briefly, but he's Nicholas's impressive 
father. Now remember William, when he would speak to William II, he wouldn't even look him, wouldn't even face him. He would sneer at him over his shoulder. <laughs> he wouldn't even face William. And so, of course, William's insecure around the schedule, but that's how he led. He was very domineering, and he put down everyone around him, and he made everyone feel very small. But you can imagine growing up in the shadow of this. And then Alexander is going to get sick and die before he has passed along the understanding of how to even be a czar of Russia. So Nicholas actually has no idea about anything to do with his job description. I don't know, are you guys starting to sense that this, is, this story is going to go bad somewhere along the line? So this guy's huge, okay? I, I put this picture in just to give you an idea. He's six foot three. He's a massive, strong man. Okay, Nicholas is actually sort of a small guy. He's not that big. And so you have this massive father, and then you have little Nicholas that follows in his wake, in his footsteps. So this is just a, a quote about Alexander. The eldest son of Emperor Alexander III, Nicholas, was his father's designated heir. But Alexander did not adequately prepare his son to rule a Russia that was racked with political turmoil. A strict autocrat, Alexander believed that a czar had to rule with an iron fist. He forbade anyone within the Russian Empire to speak non-Russian languages, even those in places like Poland, cracked down on the freedom of the press, and weakened his people's political institutions. John Vanderkist, in the, the, the book The Romanovs, writes, uh, Alexander was extremely strong. He tore packs of cards in half with his bare hands to entertain his children. When the Austrian ambassador in St. Petersburg said that Austria would mobilize two or three army corps against Russia, he twisted a silver fork into a knot and threw it onto the plate of the ambassador. He said, that is what I'm going to do to your two or three army corps. Okay, so this is his dad. <laughs> this is what he has to follow in. And I don't know how easy it is for you to stick yourself into this situation, but I'm sort of, it's easier for me maybe because of my leadership style. I tend to be the nice guy too. And I'm not the guy that twists forks and tries to intimidate people and bark, you know, at people that way. And so I can understand, you know, if you stick me in this situation, it's very uncomfortable. The quest for competence, the leadership foibles of the last Russian czar. So there is a spoiler in that. Uh, and it says the last Russian czar. Something is going to happen in this country during World War I that I'm sort of restraining myself from totally giving way to, even though in the very first message of the series, I started in 1918, and we're right smack in the flow of a very, very important part of the, the storyline, and then we went back in time. Some of you are like, oh, what was that? I can't remember that message at all. And you know, there, there's this, this Russian czar is going to really struggle and he is going to be very playable. And that's why William II is going to manipulate him. Because William II has no voice in anyone else's life. He, all the other leaders are like, you actually think I'm that dumb as to listen to you? And I think William does think they're that dumb to listen to him. But no one does, except for one guy, Cousin Nicky. Nicholas listens to him. And so Nicholas, is, he just wants someone to stand with him. You could just imagine if you felt all alone in leadership, because leadership is a very lonely place. What is Elizabeth Elliot's quote? Loneliness is a required course for leadership. That was her quote. And it's very true. And so just imagine being a czar, and 
when you can't really trust, the international intrigues are very high. And so he has a, a, a cousin named William. And wouldn't your cousin have your back? Wouldn't your cousin be someone you could trust? And yet William is going to manipulate him into a place where it's literally going to cause the, the breakdown of the entire Russian Empire and ultimately the death of Nicholas and his family. I mean, it's, it's pretty extreme what William is going to lead him to, right? So William II, we'll say he's the man wielding the swizzle stick because he's going to start the reason that the Russo-Japanese War is even going to take place I'm not saying that without William, things like this can't happen, but William is going to egg on Nicholas. Sort of like, you need to stand up for yourself. Now remember, Nicholas's vulnerability is he doesn't feel strong as a leader. So William's boldness almost is being borrowed here. It's like, you need to do it. So it's like, what should I do? You should tell them to get out of Manchuria. You should go over there and deal with this. That is a territory, that's a port you must have. And so William is sponsoring a war between the Russians and the Japanese, which is going to devastate the Russian Empire. They're going to be humiliated the world over. They are not ready for this war. And the, and the, the Japanese are. And the Japanese are going to swell in their confidence of, of military strength because of this. And it's, you know, William, Nicholas wouldn't have done that. And yet Nicholas is trying to figure out how to be an Alexander III. He's not like that, but he doesn't know how to be the leader that this nation needs. And so in those moments when you know, everyone's saying, you, know, you need to have a, a strong hand, so he does have a strong hand. And then he gets all this backlash. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. He doesn't know how to lead, and it's creating chaos in his nation. So there's a picture of uh, the swizzle stick uh, wielder, uh, William. Isn't it fun just to have a new picture? That's a painting that I can only imagine William himself commissioned to be done, right? That, doesn't that fit him uh, well? Where, oh, he's so noble uh, in that picture. You can't really see his, you know, his mustache uh, in that, but it's there. It's there. The Siberian peasant. So Grigory Rasputin is from Siberia. He's a peasant. He's like, uh, his parents had like seven kids. He's the only one that survived uh, in infancy. And there's nothing special about this guy. That's what's so odd about the story. He, he ends up stepping into this storyline basically because of the weakness and the vulnerability of Nicholas II. Nicholas has a problem, and he needs someone to help him with his problem. So I'm going to say uh, it's, he's the strange match for an uncertain world leader. Now I'm going to swap out the photo here just so you can get another idea. It's why when I say that he's, he's sort of a difficult guy to take a photo of, uh, yeah, we're dealing with uh, some demons here, guys. <laughs> you see, the devil is very much a part of this storyline in Russia. He is. And the enemy loves to stir things up, contention, division, and war. In other words, what we're seeing is a result of something. This weakness, when you have a weakness, when you're given an assignment that is bigger than you, there's two ways of handling it. One is to collapse under the weight of it and to reach out for anything and everything in your life that could stabilize. 
The other is to fall into the hands of God and say, God, I can't do this, but I trust that you are able to. If you have given me this assignment, then I ask that you would work through me to do it. Okay, two very different courses that you can go. And when you go into self-pity mode and you allow uh, that self-pity to lead you to say, well, I have no choice but to do this. I have no choice but to do this. Nicholas is going to make choices that go against his better judgment. Grigory Rasputin being one of them. However, he's desperate for stability in his life. And this guy just happens to play him like a fiddle. This is a swizzle. Not just what William is going to do to him, but what Rasputin is going to do to him. So here's Nicholas II in one of his journal entries in October of 1906. A few days ago, I received a peasant from the Tobolsk district, Grigory Rasputin, who brought me an icon of St. Simon Verquituri. Sorry, guys. He made a remarkably strong impression both on Her Majesty and on myself, so that instead of five minutes, our conversation went on for more than an hour. If you were a holy man, someone from the Orthodox Church, you could actually get a meeting with the Tsar and the Tsarina. And so he was going to get a five-minute meeting. And yet something that he is going to do in this time is going to so entrance them that they are enthralled. He's going to even write it in his royal journal. I mean, wow, could you imagine just being a peasant and having the Tsar of the most powerful nation on earth write that about you? It's very impressive, you have to admit. So Carolyn Harris is going to write this. The imperial couple had consulted unconventional spiritual advisors in the past, but Rasputin filled this role by his ability to read their inner hopes and to tell them what they wanted to hear. Listen to this. He encouraged Nicholas to have more confidence in his role as czar, and Alexandra found that his counsel soothed her anxieties. By the First World War, Rasputin was also providing political advice and making recommendations for ministerial appointments, much to the dismay of the Russian elite. So this guy is going to worm his way into the czar and the czarina's living room. Literally, he will stay at the royal palace at times. I mean, it was like, you've got to be kidding. But he, what he says does something for him. The, the czar needs confidence. It's like, you need to be stronger. It's like, oh, I needed to hear that. This guy really has an insight into my situation. The Tsarina really struggled with anxiety. Okay? Everything in her life was just an, a, a panic attack. And yet when he was around, he would say things that would soothe it. And so as a result, they became dependent upon this guy being around. But his voice continued to get larger and larger and larger. Where? I mean, spoiler alert, sort of spoiler alert. He's ultimately going to be leading the country. Uh, in and through the puppet Tsar and Tsarina. Uh, that doesn't sound healthy, but that's indirectly what's going to happen. The Romanov love story, not your everyday royal couple. Now, a lot of royal couples are just matched with each other. Okay, You've read the old stories and you've seen the fixed marriages. This couple is different. Now, they both were supposed to marry someone else, and neither of them wanted to. They had fallen in love with one another. And yet certain circumstances had to happen which allowed this to unfold. Alexander III is on his deathbed, and he, is, he was dead set against uh, Nicholas marrying uh, Alex. And yet at the very end, right before his final breath, he is going to give his blessing to it. And so these two are genuinely in love. 
And it's actually rather beautiful, okay? There's, there's a lot to this story that is really touching, and it's, it's wonderful, and it's the way it should be. However, you'd sort of like to have that love story uh, and get it outside of this context, because this context is just a crushing weight. So here's uh, Nicholas in a journal entry in October of 1906. It is my dream to one day marry Alex H., I have loved her for a long time, but more deeply and strongly since 1889 when she spent six weeks in Petersburg. Isn't it cool to have a journal like this? So uh, this is about their love story. The two exchanged letters daily. Each letter had a number to mark the days they were apart. With letters transported by Nicholas's brother, the two young lovers exchanged letters of their everyday lives while apart. They took to calling each other sweet nicknames such as Sonny and Lovey. So by the way, that's a quote from Alexander Gonio. As far as the public was concerned, Alexandra's only duty was to give Nicholas a son and an heir to the throne. Alexandra gave birth to three girls, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia, in the span of six years. Eventually, in 1904, the couple was finally blessed with a son whom they named Alexei. So you can just imagine the pressure. You, oh Alex, have one job in all of Russia, and that is to give the czar a son. Uh... No, that's not a son. No, no, I don't know what you're thinking, but that was not a son. No, 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 I know you're pregnant. We're so excited, but that is not a son. This is before you, you, know, you can sort of investigate and figure out if it's a boy or a girl beforehand, right? And so as a result, you have this moment where the entire nation leans in because there's really one thing they need, and that's to secure the Romanov line. And this woman hasn't been doing her job so far. And then finally... You could just imagine the rejoicing. Alexei is born. However, there's something that the public doesn't know, and that is that Alexei has a problem, a physical condition that seems to be inherited down the royal line in and through Alex, Alexander's line through Queen Victoria, and that is hemophilia, which means he can't clot his blood. When he has an injury, a bruise or a cut, he could bleed to death. And so as a result, Alex has a problem already, pre-existing condition in her motherhood, and that is she stresses out. She is high anxiety. And so you could imagine how intense it was not having a boy, not having a boy, not having a boy, having a boy. I have a boy who has hemophilia. No, no, stay away from that, Alex. No, no, sit here, Alex. Well, we're going to lock you in a room, Alex. In other words, the tension of her mother's heart was off the charts. This is the air. And yet this air can die by accidentally bumping into the side of a dresser. And so as a result, the, the Russian public doesn't know this, but she becomes highly sensitive to this. And she has, she's a real mother. She's not a typical queen that has children and doesn't care about them. And they, oh, they have their tutors and they go off. Oh, they had their tutors, but she mothered them. She literally mothered them, was shocked everyone. Unfortunately, Alexei was born with hemophilia, a life-threatening and incurable disease carried by Alexandra through her grandmother, Queen Victoria. This did not stop the couple from devoting everything to all their children, as Alexandra herself took to caring for them. Unlike most royals of the time, she breastfed her children and taught them all that she was taught in her childhood, such as making the bed and baking cakes. And that might not sound like a big deal to you, but this is abnormal in the time period. When you are in this role, you actually have other people do these things. You have other solutions for it. You don't do it yourself. You're a queen. 
and yet she did all of it herself. She was a mother, even though she was a queen. So, of course, I'm setting you guys up for this tension because you guys are sort of liking this couple, too. And you're like, I'm intrigued. I like these guys. However, the weight upon them is so severe. Pierre Gilliard, who was the Alexi's personal tutor, this is what he says. He said, Alexi was the center of a united family, the focus of all its hopes and affections. His sisters worshipped him. He was his parents' pride and joy. When he was well, the palace was transformed. Everyone and everything in it seemed bathed in sunshine. But what if he's not well? What if he's sick? I don't know if you guys sense what would happen inside of Alex. How would Alexander, you know, from what you know so far, if she saw that her son became sick, maybe he bumped himself, maybe something happened. I don't know what, you know, what it could be. Just, you, you just use your imagination. How do you think she's going to handle it as a mother? Do you think she's ready just to put her confidence in Jesus as the healer and say, no, he's fine. He's totally in God's hands. He's the, he's the lone heir to the Romanoff line. And my one job, according to all these people in the world right now, is to, to parent this child unto his kingship. He's sick. Now, the, the Russian people don't know this. This is all private. And yet, in her private life, she is in anguish and anxiety constantly over this. The key to the Romanov Empire, his name is Alexei, the heir to the throne. If you want to get into the living room of the palace, this is your avenue. You see, this is the vulnerability that this czar and this czarina have. They have an access point. Now, how do we apply this in our life? The same thing is true for us. There are oftentimes things that we grip and we hold on to in our life that become access points because we're unwilling to let them go. We're unwilling to entrust them to God. And these are two, both uh, the czar and the czarina would have called themselves devout believers. And yet they are not going to function in faith in any of their decisions. They're going to function in fear. And because they function in fear, they are going to allow William to meddle. They are going to end up allowing Rasputin to meddle. They are going to actually see their entire nation fall to pieces. So Carolyn Harris says it this way, Rasputin cemented his relationship with the Tsar and Tsarina when he supposedly helped alleviate their only son Alexei's hemophilia. This guy, Rasputin, the reason he's going to become a part of their family is not because he's good looking, it's because he has something, some kind of power. Of course, the Tsar and the Tsarina believe it's God. However, he is going to have some magic ability to bring health to Alexei. And he, I, a lot of times, it's, he says, don't let the doctors give him any more uh, of their medicines, their potions, and he'll be fine. And at the time, it's very interesting because at the time, aspirin was sort of this growing concept. But they didn't understand that aspirin had the opposite effect on a hemophiliac. In other words, it thins the blood. And so as a result, when Rasputin, this peasant, says, don't let him give any of the more potions and medicines, then suddenly Alexei would get healthy. 
And so no one actually knows how in the world Rasputin did this, okay? This is one of these huge debates throughout history because there's people like, he must have been a God-man. How could he have done this without being God-powered? And other people are like, there is no way this guy was a God-man, right? He must have had some trickery, like he was brainwashing, he was you know, hypnotizing, he was doing something, I just know it. Well, I don't know that I want to try and answer that question. I mean, I wasn't there. How in the world am I supposed to comment on some of that? However, that's the avenue in. And oftentimes that's the avenue in for any one of us. You know, if you turn to a false savior in your life and that false savior gives you a sense of salvation from doing it. Like for instance, you offer a, a sacrifice unto Molech or Ashtaroth. And what happens? Suddenly rain starts coming and your fields start producing. Oh, you create a direct link between the two. And as a result, you are now going to continue to offer. In fact, maybe you'll offer to other gods. Well, I thought you were a Jew. Don't you just have one god? It's like, yeah, but this worked. And so what you're going to see is the bait of idolatry, that which takes us away from a clear faith in God and causes us to put faith in other methods because we are desperate. Carolyn Harris also says this, rumors about Rasputin's influence over the czarist regime spread throughout Europe. Petitioners believing that Rasputin lived with the imperial family mailed their request to Rasputin, czar's palace, St. Petersburg. That's not a good sign when you can just send a letter to, the, uh, to Rasputin at the palace. So this is Nicholas II, and I think this will give you a good insight into how he was thinking this through. Rasputin was a nightmare for him. He had so many problems because of Rasputin, but this is what he said. Better 10 Rasputins than one of the Empress's hysterical fits. You see, her fear and anxiety so controlled the empire that he would allow in Rasputin because it calmed her. She felt like there was a solution for her son. If her son was ever in that situation, at least Rasputin is here. And when he's here, uh, Alexei's healthier. So let's keep this evil in our home and even though this evil is creating havoc throughout the entire Russian Empire, it is better to have 10 of this problem than to have my wife go into one of his, her, historic, her hysterical fits, which are historical too. <laughs> so the toxic recipe for the Nicholas Swizzle, the con job on Russia, what is the recipe? So let's give the recipe. It's one part extreme loneliness, and that might be hard to understand. It's like he's surrounded, Nicholas is surrounded by a lot of people, but he's extremely lonely as a leader. It's a very difficult thing being a leader, and I can only imagine what it would be like to be an autocrat, uh, a, a leader of a country that isn't supposed to have the same council. You're supposed to know what you're doing. It's one part acute insecurity. It's one part intense family devotion. Now, I'm going to say that that's a positive thing, right? However, this is going to be a distortion of family devotion. It's, it's right, it's headed in the right direction, but it's somehow off, and that's going to create a weird dynamic. It's one part controlling woman. Yeah, we do have one of those in the story. One part severe desperation, and one part spiritual gullibility. You put those things together, and you have the recipe for the swizzle the disaster. Russia, again, I, I'm trying not to give too much away here, but Russia is a key player in World War I. 
I mean, it was their mobilization that is going to start Germany into action, right? And Russia has more men, more troops, more resources than any other nation on earth. And how they go in this war is going to define a lot. And the last 100 and some odd years is massively infected by what we are talking about right now. What is taking place in the Tsar and Tsarina's palace right now is actually going to impact. You know, if you've ever heard of things like Cold War, if you've ever heard of things like communism, if you've ever heard of, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin and his assault on Ukraine, all of this is directly related in an outflow of something that is happening in front of us right now on the screen, which is a remarkable thought to think that this swizzle in Nicholas's situation is not altogether different than the swizzle that the enemy tries to play on us. There is a statement, and I, I wish I could give the exact source of this. Uh, John and Betty Stam is where I got it from, but I want to say that they got it from Hudson Taylor, but I'm not positive. But John and Betty Stam wrote what they call the seven steps downward and the seven steps upward. It's like the seventh step downward is hell. The seventh step upward is heaven. And so, well, okay, I want to go upward. But however, it's also very telling when you say, what is the first step downward? Because that is almost a key line in our lives of what causes us to get off course. What causes us to start to head in the wrong direction? And what the statement was is it's to trifle with sin. When you take sin lightly, when you say that's not that big of a deal, that is the first step downward in our life. So what would be the first step upward? To take it seriously. <laughs> in other words, you go one way or the other based on how you handle a Rasputin entering your living room. Because the czar knows that this guy isn't healthy. He's not even a monk. He never even went through the Russian Orthodox Church to get any title. He's a made-up character who has some kind of weird ability to tell the future and to speak into things. Well, I mean, how I explain it, I don't know. I could also, you could ask me about the voice that Adolf Hitler had, you know, that used to tell him and counsel him and what to do, which wasn't a human voice. And you could say, Eric, what do you think about that voice? And I would say, I don't think it was healthy, right? And there's certain things that are dead giveaways. In other words, just because Alexei's health is going to get better means nothing to me as a believer to say, well, it must be God. In other words, the enemy has sleight of hand and power as well. However, if you give way to that Rasputin influence, it will destroy you. So I'm going to go through each of those points in the, the six ingredients in the swizzle. And I just want, I'm going to give like a quote from Nicholas, and then I'm going to give truth to it. And I want you to see how we function as believers. When you feel that you have inherited a special problem in your life that no one else has, that is a vulnerability to going downward. Okay, there's all sorts of, the, the devil tries this all the time. He's like, oh, well, yeah, the truth works for them, but not for you because you have a special problem. You have a special sin. You have, I mean, your circumstances, your family circumstances, you know, your economic circumstances, you know, all these things. You know, God's truth works for the normal person, but it doesn't work here. And as a result, when you begin to accept that, 
and you begin to accept the fact that though you believe truth is truth, but it doesn't work for your particular situation, what will you do? You'll reach out to grab another solution. However, you need to recognize the truth works in every situation without exception. How about this? You do not have a special sin problem. Your sin problem is common to man. Your circumstances are unique, but your problem is solved by the gospel of Jesus Christ every single time. There is zero exception to that. Nicholas is going to feel that he has a special burden, that he has a special problem, that his problem can't just be solved by the church and the church's solutions, which, by the way, wasn't very healthy at the time either. So I could understand why he would be grasping and reaching out. However, instead of turning to faith in Christ, he is going to turn to other means and methods. What was the statement uh, in the Old Testament? Uh, and Asa uh, went to the doctors and died. It's something like that. In other words, he had gone to God before and God had healed him. And then he had this problem and he went to the doctors and died. <laughs> it's like, it's, I, I, I'm not quoting it perfectly, but it is something like that which makes you chuckle in it because it sort of shows the contrast that Nicholas instead of going to God, is going to go to the doctors, or in this case, William, or in the other case, Rasputin. But they, they, those aren't the first. He had another guy <coughs> that had come in back in the late uh, 1890s. He was a French guy that had, was a healer. He called himself a healer. And he finally was exposed as a fraud and you know, exiled from the country. But guess what? The Tsar and the Tsarina sat under him spellbound for quite a long time. In other words, they have a vulnerability because they feel they have a special weight that they're carrying. Your weight may be immense. And if you're the Tsar of Russia, I'm not going to argue that your weight is immense. However, the grace of God is sufficient for your weight. And that's what you need to know. You do not need to clamor after another human solution to solve your dilemma. So investigate in the swizzle recipe. One part extreme loneliness. Nicholas says, I'm all alone in this. Oh, for a bit of help, a bit of encouragement. And then William shows up and says, hey, buddy. Hey, let's talk. Let's hang out. I love you. You're my, you're my cousin. You know, and, you know, we have, you know, needs that are similar. You know, we, hey, we're adjoining countries and we can work together. Hey, what's going on down there in Manchuria? Those, what do those Japanese think they're doing? Well, you have a powerful force. You need to rise up and be strong in your leadership. You see, he's vulnerable for that companionship, someone who understands his situation. William knows what it's like to carry the weight of a nation, so he becomes vulnerable to William. Rasputin shows up on the scene, and Rasputin gets it. He understands the weights these guys are carrying. He sees the anxieties that Alexandra has. He understands the weight of the czar. Somehow, even though he's a peasant, he can speak the language, and they're like, oh, I needed that. That is so helpful to me. However, the truth says, you are not alone. Your God is a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46, 1. Now, of course, there's a lot more scripture, but that's just one statement. You need rock beneath your feet. When you have that loneliness, I had a, a season of exquisite loneliness in my life. And I remember on my, being on my knees with my face planted into the couch uh, cushion and crying. It's like, God, I feel so lonely. I just, I want that human companionship. And in that moment, God seemed to come in and speak so clearly to me that I am not alone, that I have him, and he will never leave me nor forsake me. 
He is with me always, even to the end of the age. And once you get that, it changes your loneliness. Yeah, you might not have human companionship. You might be in a prison cell all by yourself in solitary confinement. You are not alone, O Christian. One part acute insecurity. What does Nicholas say? I can't do this, but I must make everyone think I can. Such is my lot in life. The roots of self-pity right there. William II is going to have the same root issue, insecurity. And Nicholas has it in spades. The truth says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's just a fact. When you're in Christ, it doesn't matter what your task is. You can handle that task and carry that weight in a God fashion. That's an issue of faith. Do you believe that? You may not have it in your own pockets, but you have it in Christ. One part intense family devotion. Listen to Nicholas. Nothing can harm my family. I must do everything to protect them, to preserve them. You see, everything about that is something that's attractive. However, when you say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to help my family, what do you mean by that? (laughs) Because he's willing to bring even Rasputin into his home and have him hang out with his young daughters. And by the way, when you learn about Rasputin, you're not going to be happy that they're allowing Rasputin to hang out with his young daughters. Okay, this guy is profane. He is perverted. He is a nightmare in Russia. And yet, they have no choice because they're willing. The czar is willing. Whatever I need to do so that my wife doesn't have hysterical fits. Whatever I need to do. In other words, it sounds good, but it's distorted. It's a distorted family devotion because the best thing you can do for your family is surrender them afresh to God. Listen to this statement. The truth says God cares for my family more than even I do. He is a good father and he will care for my family when I care for his kingdom and his righteousness. I'm going to focus on Jesus Christ with my faith and I'm going to say, God, I trust you. I need wisdom. I need you to lead and protect this home. But I do not need to compromise and allow a Rasputin into my home to solve and pro- to my family and to protect them. One part controlling woman. I don't know if you've ever seen a controlling woman, but Nicholas lives with one. Nicholas says, I am willing to do whatever it takes to avoid awakening the hysterical fits of my wife. The truth says, I love my wife and desire her to spiritually thrive. Therefore, I seek to be a man under the control of the word of God and not the control of my wife. It's, it's sort of like Peter when he says, you know, you answer for yourself. Is it better that we obey God or man? Is it better that I heed a woman or God in this situation? It's a tricky one when you're married. However, the key is for headship and leadership is to make sure you never compromise your walk with God and the Word of God to appease. One part severe depra- desperation. Nicholas says, I must have a solution now. I'll accept anything, even if it's the devil that must be my helper. I don't know if you guys see a problem in that. But when you get so desperate that you're willing to sacrifice to Molech and Ashtaroth, when you're willing to allow Rasputin to be your solution, you know how many times he kicked Rasputin out of his house? Mm Mm-hmm. He did not like the impact of this guy. It was darkening his world, too. But Alex needed him. I mean, it's just so weird. Everything about the story is so weird. And so guess what? Alexei would get sick again, and the czar would crumble, lest his wife get into a hysterical fit, and they would bring back in Rasputin. So the truth says, my God always comes through. I trust him implicitly. I will rest in faith knowing that he has both wisdom and provision for my current needs. One part spiritual gullibility. 
Nicholas says, if a man calls himself godly and describes himself as holy, he couldn't possibly be lying. And I would say, oh, yes, he could. Okay, that's called a wolf in sheep's clothing. The truth says, not all that are dressed in sheep's clothing are sheep, but often they are inwardly ravenous wolves. You must measure by the fruit of action and not the fruit of sentiment. Whatever is not from faith is sin. You see, this is in the context of eating and diet. However, it's the same. It's still a truth. You see, when we function out of self-effort to solve our dilemma, it is not godly. It is sinful, which means it's errant. It's against the pattern. It's headed in the wrong direction. The power of the mystical and the unexplained. How did he do it? This is, when, you, when you look at Rasputin's story, most people, they get caught up in how he did it. And I would say that's not actually as important as was this God or was this the devil. <laughs> that actually becomes far more important. And I would say that's the power of the clear and obvious. This man was not a godly, holy man. There are certain fruits that are evident in a godly, holy man, and this man did not show even one of them, even a scrap of one of them. So most of the quotes on this particular topic are not the types of things I want to stick in one of my daily thunder topics because he was that bad. This man was about one of the worst reprobates you could ever imagine. But Carolyn Harris is going to say it in a way that I feel I can at least read it. Rasputin presented himself in the imperial court as a holy man, despite no formal affiliation with the Russian Orthodox Church, and spoke as a self-appointed representative of the peasantry. But his behavior from, away from court offered a different portrait. His drunkenness and affairs with women of all social backgrounds, from street prostitutes to society ladies, scandalized the public. The dangers of the mystic's cloak. The things that can happen under the banner of godliness. Oh, well, this is, this is God. You know, they quoted a scripture. I still remember one of our presidents, a few presidents back, that quoted a scripture, misquoted a scripture, and everyone's sort of like, well, he quoted a scripture. He must be fine. And it's like how dupable we can be. The, fa the enemy knows that, too. Just quote a scripture, and everyone's like, oh, and it's just like the people begging on the side of the road. They stick, like, God bless on the side, and they know that that's, everyone's a sucker for that, right? Oh, they must have a good heart. And I'm not saying you shouldn't give money to the person that's begging for food. I'm just saying that we can be played. There's a swizzle out there. And the enemy, it's not just that back in the day he was a wolf in sheep's clothing and there were false prophets. It's today that there are false prophets. That there is something that tries to control and play the church. And when we start justifying the allowance of certain compromises into our midst, it creates a breakdown of epic proportions. Listen to this quote. So this is Alexander Kerensky. I'm sorry I didn't get his name up there, but he is going to be the one that, in a temporary government, I'm not going to go into that right now, after the Tsar and the Tsarina, uh, is going to take control. Now, he's not going to have control for long because there's another character known as Vladimir Lenin that is coming to town. Okay, everything is going to go dark in Russia very, very soon. But this quote is quite powerful. Without Rasputin, there would have been no Lenin. In other words, the greater evil that is going to come, known as communism, the Soviet Union, this darkness that is going to lead to the deaths of hundreds of millions, that what Kerensky is saying, whether or not we can say he's you know, the, the foremost authority in this situation, he was up close to it. Without Rasputin, there would be no Lenin. 
In other words, what caused the Lenin situation? Being swizzled by Rasputin. In other words, what caused Rasputin? Well, there's a recipe for that. And that was that he became the victim. He was the one that needed something other than God to solve his problems. And as a result, he was played. But not just him and his family were destroyed. His entire nation is going to suffer greatly because of it. Rasputin, he's merely the compromise that leads to the crumbling. So in each of our lives, what I would like to recognize is that the enemy creeps. He doesn't always bang on doors loudly. He creeps. And he comes in under the banner of a self-justification. Oh, this isn't that big of a deal. However, the first step downward is believing that, that this is not a very big deal. Let's start to take the small things seriously. And let's not allow the enemy to swizzle us so that our name needs to be in a daily thunder, you know, 100 years from now, you know, with our name in it, the such and such swizzle. That's not what we want either. I really care about Nicholas. That's, it's, it, if you study his life, it is actually sort of hard to swallow. It is a tragedy of tragedies. But I like his desire, like his makeup. But he was being shaped by things other than truth. And the same thing can be said about us. God has a design for us, and there's a beautiful story there. However, we can be played and destroyed. And what we want to respond with is, nope. I want to be marked by faith. I want to be a believer. I want to kick Rasputin out of my living room and allow him no more voice. Father, we ask that you would accomplish this in our lives, that you would sensitize us, that as we study these stories, that we would be edified and strengthened, not just disturbed because of what has happened in the past, what the enemy has gotten away with, but to draw a line in the sand and say, that stops right now, right here. Lord, we are not victims. We do not have special problems and special sin that cannot be addressed by your gospel. Lord, your gospel is great enough. The work of the cross is sufficient to break through whatever chains, whatever barriers may be there. Whatever weights we are assigned to carry, you will supply us everything we need to carry it. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.